You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 264 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. Happy New Year, Al. (laughs) Is it still Happy New Year if we're this far into it? I kind of always wonder when you stop. When do you stop wishing people a Happy New Year? Oh, I say it for like... Like what if I don't see you till May? Can I still wish you a Happy New Year? Well, no. Okay. No. But I say it throughout the month of January. And then I say it all over again for Chinese New Year. So I say it practically till the end of February. So you're very busy with the Happy New Year's, right? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I think so. Like it's such a happy thing to say. It is. I guess it is a happy thing to say. I just kind of always feel like by about January 5 it's over and you're the the year is just into it and we're on to it. Particularly I have to say the first day back at work, I think it's all over at that point. No. Whatever no, your first no, no. day back at work is, Happy New Year is finished. No, I think that it's such a happy thing to say that people are always in a good mood when they reply and also people are generally in a good mood in January. Okay. Don't you find that? Um, yeah, generally. Yeah, it's it's a pretty, you know, because I think most people are just really still drifting along for they a lot are. of January. I love it. I love everyone's mood in January. I think it's fantastic. Yes, if only we could always be like that. What was the highlight of your uh, little break? Well, to be honest with you, I think the highlight of it was just not knowing what day it was. That's my oh, favourite thing yeah. about that time of year is just the fact that you everyone's constantly sitting there going, God, what day is it? Does the bin have to go out today? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, <that laughs> it's that kind of thing. Um, I, I, lo- I really like that aspect of it. Um, where you're sort of all just drifting along doing whatever it is that you do. We went to the beach a lot. We went to Sydney for a few days and did some cultural activities, caught up with family, you know, just just kind of that sort of stuff. And then, you know, we're all back at work and so now it's just juggling. Did you read any good books? Work. I read lots of books. Um, yes. It was really funny because – uh, so there's a group called Your Own Next Read, which I um, which oh, I manage. Okay. It grew out of. Do you remember I used to have the Pink Fibro Book yes, Club? Yes. Um, so this group grew out of that because I I kind of got to the point where I wasn't going to post a monthly book for everyone to read every time because yeah. You know, people- very hard Mm. so we just have this group which is like your kids next read in the sense that it's all about like I read this book and it's great you should read it too like it's recommendations or I'm looking for a book that's like blah blah anyway where was I going with this file your oh yeah somebody posted (laughs) someone posted in there on like January the 2nd or January the 3rd they were like you know what's your first read for the new year going to be? And I'm like, dude, I've already read three. I don't, I don't know wow. where to go with this. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's mostly I just kind of this time of year for me is just working through, 
it's working through stuff that, you know, because we obviously get sent quite a few books as part of our podcasting, you know, joy. Yes. And uh, so it was working through some of those that I hadn't got to. It was like the ones that I got at the fate, like I'll often go to the fate and get, you know, 12 books that um, are just kind of in the crime genre. So I'll, I'll kind of haunt through those in the holidays. For me, holiday reads are all about, I'm not going to read an important book in the holidays. Yeah. It's just not where I go. It's not what I do. Right. I just read the stuff that needs Ooh. to be cleared off my bookshelf basically. And that's what I work on. Do you do this thing, because um, uh, I don't do it as often now, but I do still do it, I admit, because I am a magazine junkie still. Mm. And uh, I think when you grow up in magazines as we have, it's hard not to be. And mm. uh, there are many instances in the past and only occasional instances now where I will come home from the supermarket, from the newsagent, whatever, with a copy of a magazine that I already own like that oh. particular issue. Really? And oh yeah, and I never it now Oh, yeah, and it now spills over into books. <laughs> oh no. I've got multiple books that I've paid for twice. Yeah. Mm. Oh, <laughs> God, we really need to talk about this. This could be like this is possibly just a symbol of getting older as opposed to anything else. <laughs> Maybe you should maybe you should like put together a list of what you own and check it before you buy the next one. <laughs> one would think, but that would be too hard. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I've I have to stop myself because sometimes I get that feeling of deja vu. Have I got it? Have I not? And then I'm convinced that I haven't got it yet, mm. and I'll buy it. I've got it. Probably need to really have a look at that in in the future. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but give us at least one book that you read um, and, en okay, so, and enjoyed. So interestingly, this was actually a reread. So I had a Ooh. copy of The Chamomile Lawn by Mary Wesley on my shelf and I read – I went through a phase um, years ago, like 20 years ago, where I read all of her books and all of Joanna Trollope's because for some reason the two of them were combined in my mind as a as a section of the bookshelf. Ooh. And it was a book called The Chamomile Lawn. And I actually – it was quite interesting reading it again now as opposed to when I read it the first time because I don't remember all the characters being as incredibly unlikable now, uh, then, as I found them this time, but it's oh. a really she's a she's a really interesting writer, and I found that the book really really interesting to read. Um, again, it's kind of set in the war, and it's about these cousins and, um, you know, going through the war and stuff. But yeah, it was it was uh, it was good to reread. I enjoyed it because oh, it had wow. been long enough. You know what I mean? I don't generally yeah. reread a lot, no. but it had been a good twenty years since I read it last time, so it was it was okay to crack through it again. Wow, that's What about you? What did you read? Um, I read a few things. What did I read? I read um the <laughs> quite different to what you read. Um uh -huh. I read uh, a book called The 12 million dollar stuffed shark: The Curious Economics of Contemporary Art. <laughs> Gosh. By Don Thompson, uh, a non-fiction book, really, really interesting, really, really good. The guy knows, really knows what he's talking about. Of course he's talking about – and the $12 million stuffed shark that he's referring to is uh, the shark that Damien Hirst 
um, acquired and stuffed and it's a piece of art and, and Damien Hirst is a you know famous British artist and what he did actually I mean this is not what the book is about it's it's, it's really about a behind the scenes look at the um, art and auction house industry but what Damien Hirst did because you've got to get a shark from somewhere right and he contacted on the advice of his friend on the suggestion of his friend he contact he's in England he contacted a whole bunch of Australia posts Australia Post offices and mm-hmm. got them to stick on their notice board wanted shark like and paid three thousand pounds or five thousand pounds or whatever and somebody responded from an Australia Post notice board saying <laughs> yeah I got a shark <laughs> mate yeah he paid something <laughs> like three like I said three or five thousand pounds for the shark and another say two or three thousand pounds to Ship get it shark. over there yeah. So you had to get a shark from Australia. Well, I don't think there's many sharks in England. <laughs> they must have some out there in the North Sea, or do they just not go well, there? Well, it I would be I hard have to, to honestly get. say that <laughs> my knowledge of shark movements is very, very limited. Yeah, you so, don't hear of many shark attacks in no, England. I guess we have those great whites, don't we? Yeah. Nobody, nobody gets a great white like we do, do they? Nobody gets really? a shark or a snake or a poisonous spider like we do. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We do them so well. We do them so well. Anyway, yes, so that's a little bit different. But let us move on. We've got a really great episode for the start of the year because coming up is your interview with Fiona McIntosh. But before we get on to that, we have some more questions from our listener community because uh, listeners will remember, and if you're new to us, please do go back and have a listen, to our last episode of 2018, we opened it up to listeners in an Ask Me Anything. So any question that you had, Alison and I were happy to answer. But there were so many questions that we couldn't fit them all into one episode. So there's a few leftover questions which we really want to get to uh, now. And so we're going to answer them now. So our first question is from Nathan. And Nathan has asked, how beneficial is writing outside your genre? Worth the time and effort to broaden tools to enhance craft? Or would it be more beneficial to focus on a higher mastery of your own happy place of writing? That is a great question, particularly for you, Al, I reckon. Yeah, so I would have to say that Writing outside your genre is incredibly beneficial. And why do I know this? Because it wasn't actually until I started writing outside my genre, so to speak, or where I thought my genre was, that I um, became a published author. So the Mapmaker Chronicles uh, was my first ever fiction for um, young readers, first time I'd ever attempted it first time I'd ever thought about it. Um, prior to that, I was, and I think we talked about this in my long and involved story about publishing, how I got published in the last episode. Um, I was writing for um, adults. I was writing, you know, what would probably be called commercial women's fiction. It was where I thought I should be. It was where it made sense for me to be. It was my happy place of writing. I enjoyed mm. writing it. Um, and I sort of had the idea about, you know, this random book about map makers six months before I did anything about it because it wasn't what I wrote. It wasn't where I'd ever written before. I had no idea how to write for children. I had no idea how to write serious fiction. Um, so I ignored, tech, you know, basically I ignored my best idea for a really long time before, you know, it became so compelling to me that I had to actually do something about it because it wouldn't let me go. Like it was hanging around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fact that my agent asked me if I had anything for children helped a great deal. Um, But, you know, I I think sometimes we get so focused and fixated on what it is that we think 
we should be writing and what we think you know, is the right thing for us, that uh, we can ignore our best ideas. So I think that if you have an idea for something that you've never written before, um, have a crack at it because you might actually find that it's the thing. You might actually find that it's the one that pours out of you in six weeks and becomes your first published novel. So, um, you know, I I guess I I don't think I'd actively sit down and go, you know what, today I'm going to attempt writing you know, historical fiction, or today I'm going to attempt writing a literary novel just to see what it's like. It's not necessarily that exercise. It's more like if you have an idea that, you know, is something that you think you can't do or something that you think you've never tried this before, so it's it's obviously not the right thing and what you're actually supposed to be writing is this. Yeah, if it's not what you're supposed to be writing but it's nagging at you, have a go at it because you just might find that it's actually the thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And if you're, I I think it's just good to experiment with all different types of writing because you never Mm. know what you're going to learn in terms of your writing practice that you can apply to your own writing. That's So another question is what's your take on what makes a book literary? It is, is it the level of skill with which the author examines a core concept or distinct genre? of its own. For context, this came up in a discussion over speculative fiction being excluded with only a fine blurry line for crossover versus the argument that there was nothing in the rules of spec fic in excluding it with the belief that they were separate, justified or otherwise was the only thing keeping them apart. Okay. I think let's just answer what makes a book literary fiction. Well, <laughs> but thank I just, you for the I background. Find, <laughs> yeah. I, I find this, um, to be honest with you, a particularly difficult question to to answer like it it's an it's an interesting thing I think that to a degree it's a it's probably a depth there's a probably a level of depth involved in um because you know you'll read sort of uh someone like Peter Temple for example uh who writes crime fiction technically crime fiction but his his uh work has always been considered to be like more of a literary crime fiction and I guess when I read it there is a there is a there's a level of beauty in his writing and a level of depth in his writing that does perhaps you know take it beyond the sort of like once a year you know things that you sometimes see but then there's also a level of skill in writing any crime really really yes. well yes. um you know some of those blockbuster novels that you read uh, are incredibly well written things so i i don't know like to me i think it's an arbitrary line um in some ways um, I think sometimes with literary fiction, we have looked at this in the past. Like I know we, uh, we we spoke to Charlotte Wood. We've spoken to literary authors in the past about what makes literary fiction, and I think mm. that they they you know sometimes find it difficult to actually even um, you know respond to that question. But I think it's worth having a look back over those episodes. Mm. Um, perhaps we can put a list of some of those in the show notes as to some of the literary authors that we've spoken to. But, you know, I mean, I don't know, Val, is it pacing? You tell me. What do you think makes literary fiction? Yeah, well, I don't think it's necessarily the, the level of skill because there are people who uh, write literary fiction who also might write a crime novel or a sci-fi yeah. or some yeah. other kind of genre of fiction and they apply the same level of skill to that, as you've said. I actually do think you just said pacing. I do mm. think that pacing has something to do with it. It is usually a tiny little bit slower than – um, other types of fiction than genre fiction. It's it's usually not lighthearted. It's usually not commercial. It's almost easier to say what it's not 
<laughs> so it, it doesn't fall into um, obvious genres like crime, like romance, like, um, you know, commercial fiction, that sort of thing. When I say commercial fiction, I don't mean it's it can't be successful. There are some literary novels that are obviously successful, but I think it does come down to style and tone and, and theme slash topic. I was so, going to say, to me, it's an exploration of theme rather yeah. than a necessarily an exploration of story. And I think yeah. that that's possibly yeah. where the line is. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, people have debated this, you know, for decades. Is it a construct in, in publishing to have a section called literary fiction? I don't know. Um, but to me, it, it is a story that is a very deep exploration of theme as opposed to yes. um, necessarily focusing on story. And I think that that's possibly where the where it is I'm well sure. I think it's a combo I think that as you say it's it's a much deeper exploration of theme it's mm. a much deeper exploration of characters typically it does have a not slow pacing but possibly just slower pacing than other you know genre fiction mm. um and and there's probably a few more layers not only in all of the above in the characters in the in the in the the themes in the um issues that are being discussed so mm. yeah mm. i'm not sure whether that answers your question but hopefully no it does. because i i honestly feel like it's one of those questions that there's no specific answer to that i think it's mm. it's it's always going to come back to to your reading of things, I mean, for some people, you know, what makes literary fiction is very different to what other people consider. And some people might put, you know, some of the, you know, like experimental fiction is not to everyone's taste. It is literary fiction, but, you know, a lot of people are just like, yeah, no. So I think it's um, it's always going to be a subject. It's like all aspects of all aspects of reading, really. It's always going to be subjective, right? Yeah. So Matt has asked, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever heard given to a writer? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? I tend to ignore and forget the worst pieces of advice. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, well, I've heard pretty bad advice. Um, uh, People who say, um, and they are out there, Al, you might find this hard to believe, but they are out there and they advertise on Facebook and they um, are out there and they say, write a novel in two days. Mm. That's delusional. Mm. Yeah. You know, hey, you can write a short story potentially in two days, but mm. write because uh, that's only 1,500 words or something. Yeah. But write a novel, write a book in two days, I don't think mm. so. You might be able to think of your concept in two days if you've got a good, you know, imagination, but you certainly can't write it. And I know that there are people out there who who say that it's possible and who say that they can, you know, show you how to do it. And I think that that's bad advice because it's giving people the wrong impression. Mm. So yeah, I'd agree. That's there's a lot own. of I think there's a lot of bad advice out there. I think I uh, as I said, I I try to kind of like I don't know, I t- tend not to remember most of it. Mm. Yeah. All right, we'll move on to the next one. Lucas said, "Hi Val and Al, just wondering the best way to work through perfectionism. Even when writing a first draft, it pains me not to read things over and over before continuing. In some cases, I only write a few sentences." 
before having to fix things up. It's definitely causing delays in my writing routine. Would love your advice. That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all I can say is save your perfectionism for editing because you will never finish your novel. You'll never finish your manuscript. You'll never finish your first draft if you persist. And also the other thing that gets me about this kind of stuff is what makes you think that the three words that you change today are better than the three words that you wrote yesterday in the sense that until you've got your whole story, you don't, mm. you just don't even know. Like I, I just find it fascinating because people keep saying me, telling me they're going back and they're fixing the first chapter and they're doing this and they're doing that and they haven't got to the end and they can't get to the end because they can't get that first chapter right. And I'm like, you don't even know if it's your first chapter until you get to the end of your story. Exactly. Like look at my example. Imagine if I just kept going back and back and back and fixing my first chapter and fixing my first chapter every time when, as we have discussed at length in the past, half the time my first chapter disappears in its entirety by the time my published novel comes out. So you just, you don't know what you have until it's complete. Yes. I think that you have to get to the end until you even understand whether or not you've actually got the, even if you've plot your story, like this, this happens to, to authors who plot their stories from start to finish and they still don't know what they have properly until they go through and do the second, uh, until they have a complete first draft. Because even though this is how you think it's going to be, by the time you get to the end of your novel, it may not be that at all. And I just think that you have to get to the end to know what you have. That is really great advice. So Luke, just remind yourself that you actually can't fix anything at the beginning till you know what's happening in the end. I totally get the... um, the the tendency or the inclination to reread your stuff and you know I'll admit I do that (laughs) but I yeah and and I can't help myself I even reread some of my emails that I've sent the night before because I can't help myself oh wow really (laughs) I know I know I did it way madness lies I know so I understand the tendency but you have to remind yourself you can't actually properly fix anything at the beginning till you know what happens, till you know what you've written in the end. Not just what happens, but what you've written in the end. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, look, people say to me, but how do you manage this, Alison? Because, you know, you'll be right, and this happens, right? I'll be writing and writing and something will turn up and it's amazing, but I need, I can't have it in this particular position unless there's some semblance of of it, you know, appearing earlier in the book. And I do understand that people get sort of freaked out by that, but So basically what I do is if I'm writing and something appears, some amazing thing that I love and I can't possibly do without for this story, I I do, I go back to whatever chapter it is that I feel that it's probably going to first appear and I do put it in, but I put it in as a insert blah, blah about blah, blah here. And then I know... I can continue forward with that idea because I know that I am not going to forget in the edit that it needs to be seeded into chapter two or chapter three or wherever it has to go back to. It's there. The note is there. So I then continue onwards and then as I'm doing the edit, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to do something. So I'll have a look at what I've done. I'll look at where the best place for this thing to first appear is and then I start to seed it through the rest of the novel. And it's one of those things where when you're doing this for the first time and and I understand this because because I, I've had this feeling too. The first novel I ever edited was 90,000 words 
And I felt like I was just, I felt like I was piling up words in all directions. And every time I moved a word, I had to re, you know, I had to fix it sort of 15 um, instances down the track and all of that sort of stuff. But it does get easier the more you do it. And you do have a much better handle on how to manage all those words the more often you do it. So don't be frightened of having things in your manuscript in your first draft that no one but you is ever going to see. Don't be frightened of having things in there that may not be fully resolved because you will fully resolve them when you edit it. That's the whole job of editing. All right. So I think both Al and I were a bit deluded thinking that we were going to get through the rest of the questions because we need to get on to the rest of the episode. Oh. And so what we will do is continue we'll our questions yeah. <laughs> um, in the next episode. They're all such great questions and we'll definitely um, come to them. So uh, really thank you guys for taking the opportunity to ask them to us. Uh, so our question, not our question, our competition for this week is, um, oh, this is really cool. It is, uh, rewording the brain by David Assel, who of course is the master wordsmith and crossword guru guru. David shows how cryptic crosswords can boost your brain power and improve your memory and cognitive capacity. In this entertaining and essential book, cryptic crossword guru Assel explains how your brain responds to and benefits from attempting these crosswords. A growing body of research suggests cryptic crosswords are the ideal workout for your brain, and he shows how regular training of this kind can be fun as well as fundamental. So this is, uh, of course, by the David Assel, who is um, featured in the, I think it's the Sydney Morning Herald every Saturday, Hmm. um, where he writes about words and all sorts of things to do with words. Entries close on the 14th of January. So just go to writerscentercomau slash win for your chance to win a copy of this cool book. All right. So, Al, are we ready for the word of the week? Our first word of the week for the year. We, the royal we, is ready for the word of the week, Val. <laughs> awesome. Okay. The word of the week, it sounds like al dente, but it's not. <laughs> it's, I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. Detente. D-E-T-E-N-T-E. So mm-hmm. it's spelt like or al dente, but it's detente. Do you know what it means? Well, do you know what? It's funny you say that to me and I have immediate memories of like, Year eleven history. Was there it, one? Was yeah, there a detente? Yeah. World War Two or something? I just have this it could, memory. It could refer to. It could be in that context. Yes, yes, because it actually refers to relaxing, but not generally the kind of relaxing you do when you watch Netflix. It's mm-hmm. usually the relaxing of internal tension. So you might say the warring nations reached a detente when the respective leaders uh-huh. met at the peace summit. So ah, it okay, could so have there been. was some kind of memory. I do have this vague memory from, as I said, like you know, year eleven history or year ten history or something of 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 that word. So that's obviously where it's come from. Yes, yes. But, so detente. There you go. Mm, mm. So you're not having a detente when you're watching Netflix. No, no, no. You're probably okay. not. 
<laughs> All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week, Fiona McIntosh. Do tell, Al. So this was a really interesting interview. Um, so Fiona McIntosh is a, you know, obviously a best-selling Australian author. She writes what would you would have to call, you know, blockbusters, and they're kind of historical in nature. And the thing I found really interesting about it was just you know, her very straightforward commercial approach to fiction. And I think that it's it's a very um, – we, we spoke to Di Morrissey, I think, towards the end mm. of last year. Um, and, of course, these are the Christmas books. These are the ones that come out, you know, with the big fanfare, often in hardback. They're coming out, you know, for Christmas and things like that. They're the kinds of books – that will appeal across, you know, males, females, whatever, age groups, like they have a huge broad appeal. And I I find that broad appeal fascinating because it's really, really difficult to write some a mass market title. So we um I interviewed Fiona about about how how to do this, how to go about it. And it was a it was uh, really good. So I'm hoping you guys will enjoy the interview. Fiona McIntosh is the author of 36 works of fiction for children and adults and one non-fiction book called How to Write Your Blockbuster. She writes across various genres but is best known for her adult fantasy and her historical dramas. Her latest book, The Pearl Thief, is out now with Penguin Random House. Welcome to the program, Fiona. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. How did your first novel come to be published? Oh, look, um, it was a real fairy tale kind of beginning for me. I was one of those uh, annoying, lucky people. Uh, I had never thought about writing a book. I had not um, crafted any stories since childhood at junior primary. Um, but around the age of 39, uh, I was a mother, I was a wife, uh, but I had sort of faded into those roles and I'd um, sort of allowed all that ambition that I'd had when I was young to, you know, leave my own mark on the world um, to sort of d become less important. And at 39, I think I was going through that classic midlife crisis of saying, I, I want to do something just for me. And there were all these options. There was, you know, jumping out of a helicopter or having a, an extreme makeover or going to Nepal to find myself. And, you know, there were all these weird, buy a fast car, um, you know, have an affair. I didn't want to do any of those things. So, and what began to nag me, and it came out of nowhere, was why don't you write a book? Um, and I just think this was where I'd been coming towards all of my life because now that I have written all these books, I, I can't imagine what was in my head not doing it so much earlier. But sometimes there's the right time or there is always the right time to take on writing or painting or, you know, being an athlete. And some of those things, um, you know, there are requirements to take those up when you're young. But for me, it found me in midlife. And so I took a one-week masterclass with the maestro, Bryce Courtney, mm -hmm. and riding high on his, he had such confidence in me. I mean, it wasn't just, I mean, he literally shook me by the lapels and said, no, you are a writer, you just haven't accepted it, and you haven't written the book yet, but go home, mm -hmm. and I give you permission to write this book, because you're, you're going to go all the way. And I just trusted that. And I came home. I wrote a book in, in five weeks, I think it was, wow. and sent it off to a global publisher thinking, well, let's go for broke. Let's go to a publisher that I 
feel could publish this the best way. And they came back within a week and said, um, we would like to offer you a three-book deal. So it was really the the fairy tale that all the listeners are going to say, well, we just hate her, don't we? Because I didn't suffer um, and I didn't, I don't have a drawer full of rejections. But the thing is, um, one thing I would like to say is that, um, you know, I had to do a very public apprenticeship. So my writing was super clunky and, you know, there was so much to learn and I had to stumble and bumble along publicly as I came into my own power of storytelling. Um, and it takes time. It's not something that, you know, although it was an overnight thing um, in terms of being accepted and signed up, um, they recognized that they had a storyteller in their midst and they needed to nurture me and, and bring me up to um, the kind of level that could sell in a, you know, in an environment against all the best sellers in the world. So it does take time. And I must say, cutting my teeth on fantasy was fantastic because it, taught me how to be a, a wordsmith and um, how to build stories and how to achieve hooks and cliffhangers and all of that, get, find my rhythm and brilliant. It was a brilliant training to get me ready to write what I write now, which is historical drama that really, really demands its pound of flesh from the writer. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit further along, okay. but I just want to go back slightly. Um, I, I really love the fact that you didn't sort of switch careers to become an author until you were 40, because I think as much as your fairy tale might make all of our listeners roll their eyes and, and you know, hate mm. you just a little bit, um, I think it's also really inspiring that, you know, that it, it's, as you say, you know, Bryce Courtney sort of gave you permission to write, which I mm. think is a really interesting idea, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are, who are waiting for someone to do that. But do you think that in some ways you kind of really got to do it for yourself? Um, I think you have to make a commitment. Uh, I think that comes from within where you think, well, look, I, I know, I mean, I run um, a masterclass. Bryce Courtney asked me to take over the masterclass when he was dying, which was an honor yes. to do, but daunting and, and full of fear for me because I'd never put tickets on myself as, as a teacher and to this day I don't call myself that. I simply call myself a guide. But mostly women who come into the group, we have some brave men who come through and we love them to bits. They're very um, spoilt within the masterclass. But the women who come are um, mostly a little bit older. They're either mothers mother's looking from beyond the sort of the nappies and the babies and I need I need to find my headspace again but also a lot of um, women in the late 40s and 50s who are saying well if you can do this Fiona I, I think I can have a go and that's what I like that they come to me for just they've made the commitment because they're making that effort to get along to Adelaide, but they're also um, looking to me to say, of course you can do this. They just want that confidence mm. that the right person is saying, of course you can do this and let me show you how. Mm. Um, and I agree. That's what Bryce did for me and that's what I'm doing for people. But it must, to answer your question, it has to come from within. You have to feel it. And there is something to be said for having lived a life before you come to your writing mm. because then you've got something to, to offer into the world of um, the characters that you're going to build. Because if, you, if you're if you a writer from 18, which is fantastic, but you haven't lived much of a life, mm. so you can't really touch the pain or the grief or the 
or the drama of life um, that perhaps a 40, 50 or 60 year old can mm. because they've lived that life. They've been in love. They've been out of love. They've, they've faced adversity. They've lost people. Um, there's, so it works both ways. But I do think there's a right time to come to your writing. And when you do, you must commit. You must just fall into it and commit wholly and trust yourself. Well, you've certainly done that. You've committed, you've fallen into it um, wholly because you have, since that starting point, created 36 books, which is an enormous mm. output. Is there, you know, how is there a, are you writing every day? Do you have a routine that you follow to kind of get those words down? Yeah, I'm very strictly disciplined um, with how I approach my writing. But um, the way I, I do it is there is a period when I am writing, and then most of the year I'm not, you know what I mean? So there's an intense 12-week period. I only take 12 weeks to write a book, um, um, but there's two years behind each book. So there's um, The Pearl Thief began in October 2016, and here it is now. So I am now working on the 2020 novel. Mm. So I'm always two years ahead of myself. So um, the writing is the easy part for what the kind of genre I write. It is the tip of the iceberg. So the writing is that little tip that shows at the top, and I sit down and and cruise through 12 weeks of writing, but nine-tenths of the work has already been done. The hard yards have already been done, and that's the research. So the actual writing requires me to be disciplined, and I write four days of every week. Um, I believe every girl needs a day off, and that's my Friday, and I think Saturday and Sunday should be all about family and family life. So I write, I write Monday to Thursday, three hours in the morning, and I tend... I, always have always worked with word count so you know if i get my word count done in the first hour and that's completely possible for me because i'm fast um then i've got the day off Mm -hmm. um the rest of the day is off i don't plow on and think well i've done my words maybe i can double my words i never do that for me it's work you know so i do my words and when i've done them i'm out of there there's no way i'm staying at my desk um to write more words. So I'm very disciplined. And what happens is by working with a word count, the numbers never lie. They just keep building. And how many words do you aim to do? Every book is different. So it depends how much time I've got. Oh, you've got um, to so, up. Yeah. yeah, I've got to dis- I've got to work out my word count and, and I do that for every book. And that's part of the, I don't know, it's a weird thing for me. That's all about getting into the headspace. When I start to plan my word count, this is me becoming committed now. I'm actually putting it down, uh, you know, on ink, on paper, that this is, this is what I'm, this is my contract, my word contract with myself. And I always hit my dates mm-hmm. because of it. Mm. Okay. So what is your process for writing a novel? That was my first part of the question. And my second part is, has it changed over the years that you've been writing? Like, do you start uh, with a glimmer of an idea and off you go? Or how does it work for you? Yeah. Um, I think with the fantasy uh, books that I began with, it was the glimmer of the idea. It was, you know, the what ifs and how about this kind of thing. But I, I must admit to everybody that, and I do quite gladly, but it, it just sort of makes people shake their heads. I don't plan anything. I don't even take notes when I'm away. I'm really you don't even take notes. No, I'm random. I'm really annoying. I know people are going to listen to this and say, well, that's no help to me at all, is it? Because um, I just don't believe 
I would love what I do if I knew what the stories were going to be. Yeah. I just wouldn't. I, I wouldn't enjoy the process. It would feel like I'm on a on a factory line just mm. churning out a story to a to a sort of um, a recipe. So I never plan my books, and it's my poor publisher just gets this. You know, I, I throw a line at them. I'll say, "Right, the the pearl thief. It's going to be about um, a survivor." of the occupation and um it will be set mainly in the swinging 60s of um you know 191963 in london and paris but a, a a solid part of the story will be set in you know the 1940s in prague and that's all they get they've got no idea of the arc of the story or because i don't either right. they may actually i think i've given you more than they actually got <laughs> um you know i might say look prague Paris, London, Holocaust survivor, you know, and they go with that. So they've learned to trust me because they know that is my MO for working and I can't give them much more. And I'd be lying if I, if I said any more to them because I don't know that that's the story. So for me, it's very organic. Um, I write on mood, I write on emotion. And when I'm overseas and researching, I'm not taking notes. I'm just listening and paying attention. My antenna is super sensitive and I'm picking up ideas everywhere I go, but I don't know what I'm gathering. So I'm gathering in my mind lots of stuff without any real plan. And, I, and what sticks, whatever resonates with me, will ultimately find its way into the story because if it's clung to my heart, then it deserves to be in that story. So um, I find that really interesting because I read that the Pearl Thief was in part sparked by a docu documentary that you watched more than 10 years ago. And no, so I'll tell you, you is I'll, that true? I'll tell you what that is. There was a, I watched a documentary a very long time ago and it was about the Einsatzgruppen, which is the mobile killing units of mm. the German army. And it was utterly harrowing to watch. And I remember my husband saying, why do you watch this stuff if it upsets you so much? And I said, because we all have to bear witness that this did happen. And, you know, and it was stuck in my mind. There was a particularly um, horrifying um, part in this documentary because there was a politeness being shown to um, the people. I don't want to say too much because it will ruin the story. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the, the colonel or whoever was in charge felt that he must do a kindness to these people because they were good people and he felt embarrassed about what was going to happen. So he showed them a particular, you know, he let them off certain things. And it was through that kindness that it became all the more chilling. Mm -hmm. because it didn't stop what was going to happen. Um, and I remember thinking that, and I got very upset about it, and it just stuck in my heart. And I remember all those years ago, I thought to myself, one day, one day I'm going to pull that out somewhere, and I'm going to use it. So mm -hmm. that's the only, that's what that refers to. But I've n I didn't craft a story around it. I just needed a book to arise as I was writing that said, you can use that scene, and this yeah. was the book. Yeah, yeah, okay, I understand that. It because... could have been The French Promise. Yeah. It could have been, you know, The Lavender Keeper because those are both World War II stories, but it just happened to be this one. This one. Um, yeah, where it came up, it bubbled up. And likewise, the pearls in the story were something I'd seen a long time ago, and they weren't even pearls. I thought they were pearls. My imagination 
had turned them into pearls, but I've since found out, um, having badgered the curating staff at the British Museum to please send me a picture of those magnificent pearls in the Enlightenment Room, they said, do you mean this? And it was a um, Viking solid gold piece. So it, my imagination obviously works overtime when I'm dreaming. And I was convinced it was these pearls. And I decided to stick with them because they were so magnificent in my, in my imagination that I decided, all right, well, I'll cast aside the Viking piece and go with mine. Um, so I think you see things when you're traveling, when you're researching. I'm always, that's what I mean. If something sticks in my mind and clings to my heart, it will come back and deliver to me. So that's what those two aspects. But in terms of the story, I had no idea, none at all. Just set out, you know, I had my setting. That's where it begins to me, place. Where am I going to um, armchair travel my readers to next? And last year it was the Himalayas. And this year it's um, Prague and Paris and London. And next year it's going to be Africa. So I just, you know, for me, place must come first. And once I have my place, then it triggers all sorts of other thoughts for me. Do you think that approach of, of creating your stories around place, is that is that one of the reasons you think that they are so popular? Is that notion of the character, of the setting almost as another character in the book? Like you create these sweeping kind of stories that take people away somewhere else. Is that one of the reasons you think that they are so popular? I think people, um, my audience definitely comes to my books for that aspect of my storytelling. I mean, it's a signature of my storytelling. Mm. So they don't expect me to write small suburban kind of stories nor would I because I just don't I don't relate to that yeah. I've always working with an epic sort of uh, landscape and interestingly enough with this story um, when I delivered it to my editor and um, one of her well her only major constructive comment to me was um, it's a bit claustrophobic and um I thought that was wonderful that she noticed that because I wasn't aware of it. But I said, well, you know, it's a frozen winter in 1942 and it's frozen winter in 1960. We're on the edge of winter in 1963. So naturally the scenes have to be indoors or they wouldn't be realistic. Mm. And she reminded me, she said, Sienna, nevertheless, my, you know, my take is that your audience want these sweeping landscapes from you. Um, and she said, also, I mean that claustrophobic emotionally, we need somewhere in the story. You've got us so tightly wound up in this story and full of tension and anxiety that I, I need to breathe somewhere. I need somewhere to just let my breath out. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting that she said that. And um, so she sort of left me with this thought that could you pop in a couple of um, outdoor epic scenes of grandeur for us? And but the way I write is every book is virgin territory for me. So it doesn't matter that I've been to London dozens of times or Paris or that I've been to Prague half a dozen times. It doesn't matter. When I travel for a book, I am traveling with a lens on just for that story. Mm -hmm. So um, her saying, can you just throw in a couple of scenes for us? Um, didn't wash with me. So I, I did get on an airplane and that's why I've done five long haul this year. And just, I got on an airplane within 48 hours and I was in Yorkshire stomping around trying to find a, a frozen landscape and found it in um, Robin Hood's Bay. Oh. And 
interestingly, I was only away for, you know, a few days. And by the time I got home and started writing that scene, I realized I had a bit of a catastrophe on my hands because all the, all the characters were now in the wrong place. It's all very well to choose Yorkshire and send my character up to Yorkshire, but all the other characters were now in the wrong place. People I needed alongside her had no reason to be in Yorkshire. Um, so we actually rewrote the back end of the book. Oh, wow. um, and that, yeah, and the whole ending changes. So the original read that we all loved now changed, but I am very grateful to my editor for those words. It's a bit, little bit claustrophobic because the story is so much more enriched and powerful and textured for those new scenes. Um, and it does give us that moment to just sigh out the sort of tension that's been building in the story. Okay, so given that you don't really take notes, like you're obviously going to places, you take, you're kind of absorbing a lot by a osmosis, yes. but creating authentic historical worlds create, you know, requires detail. Do you think yeah. that your experience in creating fantasy worlds where every detail is up to you impacts on the way that you pr- approach the setting? No, not at all. No, not at all. I think it's the absolute opposite okay. of a fantasy world. I think... In fantasy, I was building those worlds from the from the ground up, and they were fun because you you could you could put in the kind of detail that you wanted to, and it could be anything you liked. Yeah. But I am constrained by the real world in yeah. in my um, historical. So, um, if you follow my Facebook, I'm actually showing people um, every single location, every aspect of my research at the moment. We've been going for days, and and people are loving it and astonished at the amount of detail there is and what I all I've got to give them is a photograph of a memory and I've I explained um the genesis behind it um why I took that photograph and, and why this particular um you know um chair I used in the story for example I mean there's a wishbone chair and everybody said oh I've been googling the wishbone chair trying to understand and you know why you used it it's it's just whilst I'm writing I get these great ideas that oh you know I need this character to be this sort of person so what sort of furniture would surround him and you know so it sets me off on a new course and I might go hunting around in an art book or through a museum to find those bits and pieces but they're always real and always authentic oh yes um, i didn't mean all... you were making them up i just meant that you know a few telling details go a very long way to creating a world and i guess that's what i was meaning is that when you're oh, having okay. to when you're having to build a world on a page you're using those few you know as you say the wishbone chair which says an awful mm. lot about your character without you having to write four and a half paragraphs paragraphs yes. of description that's all i meant yeah absolutely yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. And it's, um, it's, again, that's one of my sort of hallmarks of my storytelling. I'm, I've done that through all of these dozen historicals. Um, you know, I let the reader make all the leaps that they need to. I give mm-hmm. them um, some clues and a rich sort of the authenticity is there and they sort of fall into it and go with it. I mean, my, my readers are fabulous, intelligent creatures who can, can do that heavy lifting, you know. So Mm. you mentioned your editor and and sort of working closely with your editor. Do do you think it's an – given that you're writing at least one book a year, do you need to work closely with an editor to just maintain that kind of pace? It's a lot of words. Um, no, not to, no, not to maintain the pace. That's my job. That's my responsibility. I'm, I'm a paid author. I'm a full-time professional author. And my job is to produce one, um, excellent manuscript, 
for for them every year. So you create the manuscript and then it goes to I, Yes, and, and my editor always wants to read um, the raw version. Um, so I don't want your um, listeners again to um, roll their eyes at me, but she gets my first draft. Uh, okay. I don't... I don't subscribe to it for the new writer i think the new writer really must do due diligence and uh, polish 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 but with me because i've i am on a tight schedules and tight deadlines and my editor and i know each other very very well she wants the raw one she said i don't want you tinkering about it and thinking maybe i'll cut this scene or may she said i want all of its you know Mm. The full thing. And the other thing I do is um, I haven't read it by the time she gets it. So we read together for the first time. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it is, I know, that is a bit of a mind shift, isn't it? It's, yeah. That it's, sounds terrifying. It is terrifying. She's reading it for the first time, and I'm trying to read faster than her. <laughs> See, oh, my gosh, you know, <laughs> have we even got a story here? The, uh, the amazing part is that Becca Brain... Um, and this really, you, new writers need to reassure themselves. It won't happen straight away, but back of brain knows how to take care of business mm. as a writer. Mm. It, you have muscle memory. It knows how to do this. And your brain is a wonderful computer that can say, all right, well, I know, I know what's happening here and I'll have it all ready by tomorrow morning when you come back to your computer. So, um, I think I'm always shocked that there is a fabulous story um, trailing out behind me, but I'm not reading it. I don't know it till Ali's reading it for the first time. And I will then say that relationship becomes vital because it is in all its raw glory and there needs to be the work. You then have to sit down together and say, right, how do we now take this to that next level and polish and, you know, Pair back. Our job is to take away as many words as possible mm. without damaging that story. And so that's what we work very hard at is cutting away and making it as the architecture as simple and robust and beautifully stark as possible. Um, and that takes maybe, you know, six, seven, eight passes. Right. So we'll do, yeah, we'll do a lot of work at the other end. So it's, I, could, I only have to do this first massive journey of the book and then it becomes someone else's problem and together we then um, massage it into the final shape. Fantastic. All right, so mm. just out of interest, I'm wondering, because, um, you know, there's sort of like this, uh, I can't remember where I found this, but I think it must have been on your website, um, mm. there was so the, the, the idea of commercial fiction. I'm just wondering how you define commercial fiction. Look, the way I define it is widest possible audience yep. with a potential to make money. You know, for everybody to make money. I mean, there are so many writers out there, um, and they've got they've got lovely ideas, you know, but they're never going to make anyone any money. They're not going to make a bookseller money. They're not going to make a publisher money. They're not going to make the author money. And so, commercial fiction marches to the beat of the ugly dollar, um, and that's its job: is to entertain people. It's like why we all rush out to watch a certain film? Why are we all rushing out to watch Freddie Mercury or A Star Is Born? Because it, you know, it sells. It's got it's got such wide appeal, mm. and it's um, a, a, a sort of going for the emotional side of 
um, a lot of the moviegoers who maybe have seen the original Star is Born with um, even Judy Garland and then with Barbara Streisand and now we've got this new incarnation and most of us have even know the words to the Rhapsody even if we don't understand it we yeah. we can sing along so we all want to um, touch that and so um, what makes a bestseller well that's the intangible but there are these books that will bring loads of people to them for whatever reason, usually an emotional reason, because they could not put it down. That's mm. what it is. It's a, it's a page turner. Mm. There's some quality to it that makes them read into the early hours. Now, you know, if you're going to f- write something very niche, that is not going to fit commercial fiction because mm. it's only going to be read by a or desired by a small amount of people, and commercial fiction must hit the broadest possible audience um, of all demographics and age groups. And so that's it will make a lot of money for everyone. It will make sure that an author can live, you know, a good life by his or her writing, and it means that the publisher does well, the booksellers do very well, you know, and um, it keeps the whole um, show moving forward. Did you set out to write commercial fiction when you when you absolutely. first started writing? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep, I'm a I'm a born commercial creature. I uh, come from a sales and marketing background. I've had my own PR consultancy. Um, my husband and I ran our own um, travel magazine for 15 years. I am a commercial sort of corporate creature, and so when I decided I was going to write books, I I the whole thing was can I do this for a living it wasn't it wasn't me saying oh I've always wanted to write a book I I must do this because it's going to satisfy some um you know special passion within me or I want to write my granny's memoirs as a you know to honor her I did not come from that angle it was all about can I make a living from this? Because this is what I want to do. I want to cast away my corporate um, skin and sit in my ivory tower or my cave, and, and I want to write books. I want to write stories for people. So, but can I make money at it? Um, and, and that's so that's purely a commercial decision for me. So when it comes to promoting your books, do you think your public relations background comes into play? Like, do you have any tips for authors in this area? Undoubtedly. I think I'm a, I am I know how to promote myself, my books, my genre. Um, I think it's one of the qualities that Penguin Random House recognized instantly when they met me. They mm. thought, well, because today, I mean, I know this sounds um, hard to hear, but today you need to be the full package, sort of um, be noticed. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have... 100,000 followers on, on, on Instagram or that sort of thing. But it does mean that you have a, um, a, a sort of a, you've got the, the sort of the street smarts for how to um, draw people to yourself and that they can put you into any situation. They can put you on television. They can put you on radio. Mm-hmm. They can put you on podcasts. That you've got something to say that you can present yourself very well and you're not going to sort of black out because the camera's being turned on you there is nothing easy about it because when i set out i'll be honest 
when I said that 18 years ago, I actually wanted to walk away from everything and sit in that cave or sit in that ivory tower and not speak to another person again. I just wanted to be surrounded by animals and perhaps my husband and children. But, that, you know, but that was it. I wanted to just be completely divorced from society and just quietly go about my business. And I remember um, Bryce Courtney you know, read me the riot act and he said, and on what planet are you living, Fiona, when you think that that's how it's going to go down for you? And I said, well, you know, I just want to withdraw. And he said, oh, come on, grow up. He said, the whole point that you've got to now be the all singing, all dancing performer. And that was quite a shock for me. Mm. I had no idea. I, I thought I was going in. Yes. And some people are very good at it and some people are not. And unfortunately, if you show that you're not very good at it, um, it does become problematic in mm-hmm. terms of how well you can get out there and promote. But um, I think uh, that doesn't mean that you won't get your chance to have your book published. I mean, a very good story is never going to go unnoticed. But I think writers must develop the acumen for um, how to get out there. And it doesn't mean, you know, the most boring thing in the world is, look at my book, here's my book, my book's just arrived, this is a box of my books, my book, my book, my book. (laughs) That gets really tedious, and new writers do that a lot. You know, here I am with my book, here I am with my friend holding my book, (laughs) this is my new book with a rose you know and here's my book (laughs) yes and my book is called this and um you know i'd like to thank all my family for supporting me while i wrote my book and here it is again and you just think stop that stop it now (laughs) you know it got dull 10 posts ago you know just calm it down and start to think about how can you how can you promote yourself and your message without being annoying? Um, because it can be annoying um, if you don't know how to do it. And I think part of that problem, in all fairness to the new writer, is they've only got one book. So what are they going to do? I know when I was setting out, I had one book. And, um, you know, when I was sitting, these are in the good old days when you used to sit in a um, bookshop and at a table and wait for somebody to come and buy your book most of the time i'd sit there and people would come up and i'd smile you know best smile chest out looking fabulous and they'd say do you know the way to the toilets you know it was just <laughs> it's so hard when you've got one book um so you have to learn how to take that one book and be subtle and be interesting about it um which is so that, that, yeah, it really is. It really is because the new writer is, you can sort of see them coming. Those wide eyes and that, you know, that, that huge smile. And I've written a book. Can I tell you about my book? And, you know, it's just, it's hilarious. But wonderful. Look, I feel it. I, I want to sleep with my first book. Mm. You know, I want to shove my husband out of our bed and just say, look, I just want that book on the pillow next to me because I can't believe this has happened. So I get it. I haven't forgotten that feeling. But my experience is there's a fast way to make everyone be quite tired of you if you don't know how to pull it back and say, well, I've, I've done some promotion. I've done some very good promotions. I'm I'm making myself available um, to people, but I'm not going to keep it's like a thump in the face all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to not do that. Okay. 
All right. Um, and on the note of excellent advice, we're going to finish up with our uh, infamous last question, which we <laughs> ask everybody, um, which of course is your top three tips for aspiring authors. That, look, there are so many tips. Let me, I'm, I'm going to, I hope I can pull out my top three. Um, it is difficult because there's so much I want to say to writers. I, here's, here's one that is always um, important. Uh, you must write forwards all the time. Don't keep reading what you wrote yesterday mm. because... What you wrote yesterday is the fastest way for you to get trapped in a horrible abyss of editing at the time when you shouldn't be editing. Mm. When you're writing, you should be wearing your writer's cap and just go forwards all the time. Don't look back. Just go forwards. And then later, pull that cap off and put your editing cap on and then look at the story as a whole. Look at the whole architecture of the story and then you've got a, um, you know, a much better idea of what the story looks like, feels like, sounds like. Um, and you need some time in between those two hats being worn. You need to actually leave that book alone for eight weeks, if you can, before you look back, because you need fresh, ruthless eyes looking at it. Um, so I think, number one, always write forwards. Um, number two is, I would say, um, don't let writing define you. I find too many writers that I meet that come into my orbit. You know, the writing is so important to them, it's consuming them. It's, it's letting um, writing define them when um, I think it's very important that you put your family first um, because they're the most important thing in the world, in your life. And I think they sh you should have hobbies or interests that take you away from your writing mm. because it's, it's too easy to get so wrapped up in your storytelling that um, it begins to suck away at your confidence and also you become one-dimensional and, again, boring, mm. you know. So I think you, the way I approach my writing is I don't stress about it. I don't plot it or plan it. I just sit down and I write 1,500 words today and then I walk away and I don't think about it again till tomorrow. Mm. But I, tomorrow, I, you know, I don't read what I wrote yesterday. I, wrote, I write another 1,500 words. So don't let it define you. Understand that this is one of, your, one of the beautiful aspects of you, you know, is that you can write a story or that you hear stories in your mind. Celebrate that and go, go forward with that. Don't let it become so all-consuming that it twists you in knots and, and sucks away at your um, confidence. Um, so there's that one. And number three, which is what I tell all my um, masterclasses, and it, it's, I know it's not very nice to say this, but no one cares. Okay, <laughs> you need to actually embrace it. No one bloody cares that you're writing a book. Not even your own family cares because actually it's annoying when you're not there because you're, you're sort of distracted. So understand not a single publisher has asked you to write this book not a single person cares if you finish it it doesn't matter that you've wanted to write all your life i don't care you don't care no one cares so uh, take that on and then write free of all um you know constraints Fantastic. don't worry about what your mum thinks don't worry about what your friends think don't worry about it because no one cares anyway so just Sit down and write that beautiful book. And if you write with freedom and no constraints, 
um, the power in your storytelling will emerge so much stronger. It will be full of oxygen. But if you let that whole care factor get you down, um, how good is it? Is it good enough? Are people going to buy this? Should I have an agent? You know, you just want to say no one cares about this yet. So stop worrying and just get on and write it. Fantastic. I have to say, I think those are three of the most original top tips for authors that we have ever had. Good, good. And I thank you greatly for those. And thank you so much for your time today, Fiona McIntosh. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I wish you all the best with The Pearl Thief. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Cool. That was Fiona McIntosh. Great interview, Al. Oh, yeah. Like I, I found it really, really interesting. I love the fact that she does so much travel. I would love mm, to just I be getting know. on a plane and going off and immersing myself in whatever but you know I am also writing fictional worlds so it's kind of difficult to immerse yourself in a fictional world but still even so I feel I could do it if I tried I'm Um, sure you could find an excuse I could and the other thing um was that having spoken to her I did actually buy her book how to write your blockbuster because Mm -hmm. I thought I was interested to see you know what she what she put into a book about writing commercial fiction and um the thing I think the chapter that I found most interesting because it is very much for aspiring novelists so it's very much for people starting out um it's a very you know like kind of primer version of of um of writing a blockbuster but she did write a great chapter on pacing rhythm and structure for Mm. commercial works and she talks very much about you know like the plot driving the story and the relentless pace because you know one thing about your holiday read your blockbuster your kind of you know the Christmas books as we talked about before Mm. is that generally speaking they will have very much a relentless pace like the the tension will ratchet every chapter it will ratchet 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 ratchet, um which keeps the story driving forward which keeps the reader you know engaged in the story because it's all about engaging your reader and getting them to the end of that story and them desperate to know what's going to happen next um so you're writing page turners and she talks about you know how she does that and um i found from my perspective that probably that chapter was the most interesting for me you know as far as it went but if you are starting out as a novelist if you're starting out as an author um it's a very good primer on you know on putting a story together and developing a character and you know particularly for commercial fiction so anyway I just thought I'd give you my small review and this was one of my first books of the year so you know as I was casting my net wide when I was putting together my my to be to be read list for for January Yes, definitely. Now, Mm. obviously, being the start of the year, this is usually a time when people do a lot of planning or they get some momentum going. Uh, I think a lot of people actually, um, and I think a a lot of listeners, are currently 
buying your 30-day boot camp because this is kind of the time of year where it's it's uh, it's a good time to get that momentum going so people definitely. are it's a great time to start developing a habit which is what you need to do get, getting your routine in place all of those kinds of things yep and in case there are some new listeners do you want to just explain what the 30-day boot camp does Oh, okay. So the 30-day boot camp actually came out of my larger course, which is called Make Time to Write, which is all about finding, making that time in your life to actually get the book written. It's it's um, for all of those people who talk about writing a book and really desperately want to write a book, but, but can't seem to manage to make the time in their lives to actually get the words on the page. Um, so Make Time to Write was the was the larger course and the boot camp, the 30-day boot camp is um, is part of that course, but we also offer it as its own standalone thing. And basically it's a 30 day program where you get me in your inbox every Mm. single day. And if you follow the, um, the word guides, if you follow the habit creation that I give you, if you follow the routine that I put into place, um, you will have 10,000 words at the, or more. Most people end up writing at least 10,000 words, at least 10,000 words at the end of that 30 day period. And the great thing about it is that you can then just reset it. You get access to it for a year you can reset it every single month for 12 months if you, if want. you want. And to, so yeah. you will then have 120,000 words mm-hmm. um, by the end of the year. So it's just a way, I guess, what most people find it useful for is just that accountability aspect of, you know, oh, mm. here's Al again. I have to create my words. Um, yeah. And I've tried to make it, and I have made it, um, as useful as possible and also as doable as possible. You know, like it's um, the, the thing about, about getting your getting your word count up and getting your actual manuscript written because, you know, people talk, oh, but it's just words on a page. But, yeah, words on a page um, get to take you to that place that we talked about earlier in this, in this, ep- in this episode um, of having something to work with. Um, and what you're mm. trying to do is you need to get that first draft out so that you have something to work with. Yes. Um, and that's, what the, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the, of the boot camp. And so many people have been able to generate their 10,000 words and we've had, you know, lots of emails from people saying that they've written 20,000 words or 25,000 words even in the 30 days because it's really helped them get into that writing habit. Yeah, I get a lot of feedback on social media about this course. I get a lot of people tagging me when they're doing it or when they've finished it or, you know, and and it's working for them Um, and that makes me so happy. It makes me so happy. And if you want to find out more, just go to writercenter.com.au slash bootcamp. That's writercenter.com.au slash bootcamp. So in this whole January period, Al, as I said, there's a whole lot of stuff happening in terms of people planning their year. Have you got any plans for this year? Well, I look, it's one of those things where I've already got a whole lot of stuff in place for this year. So yeah. I've already got festivals in place. I've already got, you know, different things that I'm doing. So I've already got dates that I'm working around. And um, obviously, like I have to then block out book week and I have to block out. So there's a whole mm. lot of stuff. I've got three manuscripts that I wrote last year, um, all of which require editing. And so I'm sort of like my my year, I, I, I'm not one of those people that sits down and goes, right, in January I'm going to do this and in February I'm going to do that. But what mm. I do have is, okay, I'm going to work on this edit first. I'm going to work on that edit second. I'm going to work on this edit third. Um, I also have an idea for a new manuscript, which I want to write um, 
you know, sooner rather than later. But I have made myself, uh, I've made myself a kind of like a, I'm working on the Bonoffi pie theory, but not really, <laughs> where if I get the edit of this bigger manuscript that I'm working on at the moment, if I get that done, then I can start writing the new manuscript oh, that yes. I really want to work on. Um, and in the meantime, I'm, I'm doing some research for something else. Like, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not a person who necessarily goes, by the end of this year, I'm going to be this. Um, what I do is break it down on a month-by-month basis and I decide at the start of each month what that's going to be. I don't go, in May, I'm going to do X because I just, it's just not how my brain works. That's really but interesting I know because you're very productive. I am. I am very productive, but I but I, and so I know what I need to do, but I'm not mm. somebody who, who has an Excel spreadsheet and works <laughs> on what they're, you know, how that's going to work. I just know what I need to do. And I know that once I start writing this new idea that I have, I'm going to have to block out six to eight weeks to do that for just writing. And then also my day, my day job stuff like teaching yes. and social media and all those things. Um, so it's, it's, I work on one project at a time. Like I, I work on one project at a time. I have three to edit. I have one to write. So there's four projects for the year. And then in the mean, and then underneath all of that, I'm doing, I've got to do some interviews for research for X. I've got to do X. So I'm, I'm looking at big projects and I'm looking at small projects and then I'm looking at the fixed dates. I'm going to X festival. I'm going to Y festival. I have to do this. I have to do that. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I operate. Cool. It's a little bit organised but not, I guess. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's surprisingly effective. It is. Surpri- yeah. You say surprisingly. There are others out there that who would just say <laughs> very effective. <laughs> it is very effective. Sorry. What are you I should doing? I said that. What am I doing? I want to get more sleep. I oh, definitely I, well, want I to get I think this sleep. is a really good idea because yeah. you know, I don't I reckon you got through 2018 on about three hours sleep. Yeah, yeah. And I think that I really realized that over the Christmas break because I just slept all the time, <laughs> like a lot. And I and I just needed it, I guess. And I realized, you know what, this is not sustainable. You can't yeah. stay up till 3.30 a.m. every every night or, yeah. you, know, you know, four or five nights a week. And um it's not good for your health. So that's my aim for this yeah, year. Think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so impressed. And of course you and I have also got so in between all those other projects I was talking about, you and I have also got projects that we need to do. So that's you know, we've got right. stuff. It's, we've got there's stuff. things happening. It's and all um happening. Yeah, I am sort of like I, I was did find myself the other day thinking I probably should really get my calendar. I, do you know what I did? I got my calendar out yeah. and my diary and all the bits and I actually wrote in the dates of things that I said yes to last year. And I also want, just want to say a little shout out to Dean. I am mm-hmm. saying 2018 on purpose because he's mm-hmm. trying so hard to get people not to say 2018 or 2019. He wants 2019 only. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you see that? Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> I, 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 so 2018, Alison said yes to like a million things that she failed to write down. So 2019, Alison spent a day the other day like updating all of my various calendars so I know what, oh, exactly yes. what I have to do. Mm. Yes. And in fact, you and I will be talking at the uh, Squibby Conference. We're opening the Squibby Conference. So the yeah. Society oh. of Children's Writers and Illustrators 
book illustrators. Yep. <laughs> um, and you know what? It's pretty much sold out. The conference yes, is it's sold such a out. Great conference. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yes, it's coming so up in gonna, February. It is. And it'll be just like watching us riff on the podcast, only more organised. <laughs> <laughs> so if you guys are going to the Squibby conference, please do uh, make sure you come and say hi. Anyway, yes. that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter and what am I doing? You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, <laughs> and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? <laughs> we're, we're yet to, you know, get into gear for 2019. <laughs> You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, uh, on Instagram and Twitter and at ValerieKoo.com. Um, make sure you connect with both of us in our listener community. It's free to join. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. And, of course, you can find all the show notes at soyouwantobearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.